This week's Texas Tribune TripCast, is the plan to raise the sales tax dead, and if so, who killed it? What does George W. Bush have to teach us about what Greg Abbott is going through right now? And what should we be watching out for in the session's final three weeks? But before we do, I'd like to thank today's TripCast sponsors. Visit San Antonio. Join us in celebrating the positive effect travel and tourism has on San Antonio during National Travel and Tourism Week, May 5th through 11th. Learn more at visitsanantonio.com slash nttw. And Texas Healthcare and Bioscience Institute, extending lives, promoting access to cures. Learn more about the work of the bioscience industry in Texas at thbi.com. Do I have to talk you a living? Do we have to make sense of it? Well, I know you're such a Hello, this is Amon Pathedra here on Wednesday, May 8th with the Texas Tribune TripCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by executive editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Reporter Shannon Najmabadi. Thanks for having me. And breaking news editor Matthew Watkins. As always, we are taking up your questions in real time in, on Twitter and Facebook. You can chime in with the hashtag TripCast. So first question, and we may spend the whole half hour on this. What the heck happened in the House yesterday? Uh, they completed the work started by the Senate the day before. The, the, the House delayed consideration of the tax swap to January 2021, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is a little bit out there in the future. Um, mm -hmm. After the next election cycle. So you just, can't actually do that, right? No, I mean, you just, delay, you, you just delay the consideration of something until after the session, and that's effective death. Yeah. Might right? as well have said the year 3000. <laughs> right. It also, I mean, if you want to play, you know, conspiracy games, it also allows you to come back in and, you know, recall the motion by which blah, 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 and revive something. I don't think that's going to happen here. The day before the Senate, uh, the day before the House did this, the Senate uh, came in with a version of the school finance bill that initially started with the spending the tax swap requires, the property tax cut, uh, and stripped all of that out and got rid of the need for a new sales tax. And so they ducked it in the House, you know, somebody said it was reading the tea leaves. It's more like, you know, being able to tell why you get hit with a hammer in the middle of your forehead. Um, <laughs> the, the Senate wasn't behind this. The House wasn't going to go out on the plank for it, and that part's dead. I mean, it was a pretty dramatic turnaround. You know, less than a week earlier, you'd seen the big three, the lieutenant governor, the governor, and the speaker of the House all saying, we're going to get this done. You know, I think the Dan Patrick quote was, even if we can't get the two-thirds support, we'll find a way to get it through. And then all of a sudden, you see these these leaders, you know, basically saying it's over. Sounds like 180 to three. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it makes you wonder, what was, was that press conference? The press conference, it felt like I was in the room for it, and it really felt like they were trying to just kind of exude confidence and just saying, we've got this, this we're going to get this done. But it sounds, in hindsight, it just feels like it was a Hail Mary. And, and it was trying to convince the members that, you know, we have the support, you should get behind us. Right. I think one of the things that I am wondering about in the wake of this is, you know, we have, this has been something that uh, Governor Abbott has been pushing for, for weeks, if not months now. Um, you, we see him, um, you know, if you follow him on Twitter, you are aware that he is one of the 10 most popular governors in the country according to recent polls. And, you know... I wonder how popular the most popular governor in the country actually is. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. But we did not really see, you know, something that was really popular among the governor first and foremost, but then also the leaders of their respective chambers, be something that they were able to get everyone on board with. Um, and, you know, it, it, it leaves me kind of looking at the, 
their abilities to to kind of get people in line, and, and maybe this was just a bridge too far for them. Shannon, you've been all over this bill. Well, I, I was mean, gonna what, say, this what, is what, the... when were you seeing true true signs of real trouble, or did you ever see any sign that made you think, oh yeah, they're going to pass the tax bill? Tax bill, you mean the tax swap, right? Not the property yeah, tax right. reform bill. Actually, this is what Matthew was asking is kind of like a good segue into my own story, which we won't go. I won't like go into it now. But I think that separate from the political um, aptitude of the state leaders, I think that property tax reform in Texas and tax reform broadly across the country is really difficult. I mean, there are only so many sources of revenue. There are things you have to fund with school finance. There are ways you have to do it, and like you're stuck between this like rock and a hard place. Where for the sales tax swap in particular, it's like. Dems don't want to support what they call a regressive sales tax. And the day of the press conference, the LBB put out their own equity analysis, which showed that it would only benefit, like, I think, the 100,000 households and above. 100 or 150. It was way it was up like, there, yeah. Yeah, it was like that bracket and above. Um, meanwhile, Republicans don't want to see, be seen as supporting anything that can be billed by a Republican primary opponent as a tax increase, even if it is a net decrease or a swap, which is, you know, revenue neutral. So I think, I mean, there are only so many options on the table. What are you going to do? Right. I keep thinking to, I can't remember if it was last session or the session before, where Dennis Bonin, when he wasn't speaker, was pushing for a decrease in the sales tax. Right. Was that, do you remember which session that was? 15, I think. I think yeah, 15. And he really, like when he first proposed it, it did not, you know, go over well. But he spent weeks really selling it to the point that the whole house got behind him and said, right. we're going we're gonna to back this bill. I did not feel like I saw any kind of sustained selling effort this session to sell increasing the sales tax as, you know, worth doing to lower property taxes. Well, their sales pitch was weird the whole way because they, instead of leading with, we're going to cut your property taxes, they seem to lead with, if we raise the sales tax a penny, we can cut property taxes, which is price yeah. before product, right? And, you yeah. know, it, you know, I think the problem with it was that the net benefit for most people is either negative or zero. It's, you know... Which pocket would you rather pay your taxes out of? Your property tax pocket or your sales tax pocket? And if it's just a swap, you know, why are we working up a sweat about this? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, like, the pros of doing a sales tax as opposed to another tax increase is that if it affects everyone, there aren't, like, interest groups that cop, like, pro pop up to kill it, like, you know, like the soda industry or whatever that wants to come and swat it down in hearings. Um, the downside of it is that, you know, it's an even swap. It affects everyone. And there's always the risk, very real, that whatever property tax relief they create, they, they instituted wouldn't get noticed. But a lot of people would notice, you know, the, the little more they're paying on everything they buy. So there's a former Ways and Means chairman in the House named Stan Schleter and uh, Dale Kramer, who we all know uh, works over at Texas Taxpayers and Research Association, calls this the Schleter rule that they only remember the tax you raised and not the tax you cut. Hmm. Um, and I just think this thing was as simple to kill as it was to understand. It was just, you know, to your point... They weren't having to fight about 60 different taxes with 60 different trade associations. Mm -hmm. But, you know, they had one big trade association called Texas that didn't want a higher sales tax. Yeah, there, there, it really didn't feel like there was any constituency outside of the capital that was really saying we need to get this done. You know, I mean, the, the, the Democrats were opposed because sales tax is a regressive tax. The uh, kind of hardline conservatives, the Empower Texans crew kind of didn't really like the idea. You know, I think like if you look at who it benefits, you could say the business community and, you know, Dale Kramer's group seemed kind of seemed to like it. But I, I don't think we saw them being out there like saying we must pass this and things like that. I mean, there was I just didn't see anyone out there, you know, holding signs saying tax swap. <laughs> 
Well, separate from like the tax, the impact on just like in tax world, like on the pub ed side, right. like the combo of a sales tax swap with um, HB3, I think that might have been some of their selling points. I think that we were looking at numbers at one point with like the... Well, you get, you get the advantage. Wait, so the selling point being that it would improve, like it would help school finance happen more easily. Reduce recapture. Mm-hmm. Those it, like, yeah. Right. It reduces, it changes the ratio of state to local. Right now, uh, Glenn Hager, the controller's numbers are... 64% local, 36% state. That's, that's a, you know, the cost of education in Texas. And, they, you know, a lot of people would like to get it to 50-50. And if you do, I mean, the tax swap does have the advantage of changing that and increasing state spending and lowering local spending. But really, how many people in the, in the real world are paying attention to that ratio, except when they pay their property taxes? They're still going to be mad about property taxes. They just didn't want a sales tax. Well, mm-hmm. the, I mean, the, the one argument uh, I think that, the kind of political reason to be doing this, I think, is we did hear from a bunch of different people at the start of the session, we're going to lower your property taxes, or we need to lower property taxes, or we need to do something about property taxes. And, you know, it kind of, we kind of kept hearing people, you know, well, you know, the the tax, the property tax bill, uh, HB2, SB2, doesn't actually lower your property taxes. It's aimed to slow the growth, you know? And there's, there's really nothing in this package of legislation. The school finance bill has, you know, some slight compressions, but things that people are worried could kind of disappear pretty quickly. In a couple of years, your property value has gone up enough that you don't really have that tax cut anymore. And so, you know, the one thing that they could do if they pass the sales tax swap is, sure, maybe your total, what you paid to the state, or in, what you paid in taxes went down, but at least, that promise was kept that this tax bill that's been driving me crazy for the past decade is going to look lower than it was before. Well, and the Senate's bill has cobbled yeah. together at the moment, you know, this will probably doesn't have much of a shelf life necessarily, but their <laughs> version has a 10% or a 10 cent cut in M&O property taxes. So there is mm-hmm. a, a bit of a cut in there. The House bill had four cents. The Senate added on some revenue measures, a diversion of severance taxes, in addition to the available school fund money that's put into the thing, and they scooped up all the money from the recent Wayfair decision that grabs people on the internet who were selling and not collecting the sales tax they were supposed to be collecting. So they scoop all of that in and added six cents of property tax cuts to the four cents the House already had in it. We'll see what comes out of conference. Yeah. Um, speaking of the Senate, I wanted to just touch on briefly what happened with Paul Bettencourt this week? <laughs> uh, and just be, uh, I, I feel like that a lot of listeners probably missed that because so much of the focus was on, you know, what happened with this bill in the Senate and the House. But yeah. Bettencourt um, kind of came up a lot. Can someone talk about why? Bettencourt is the tax, property tax committee chair in the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, he, you know, served on the school finance commission. But not the sales tax committee. But chair. not the sales tax committee. <laughs> He's, you know, his next name. He, he has a Friday afternoon... Uh, show talk radio show in Houston and his name on that show is the tax man. This is kind of his brand. He's the author of the property tax bill that is now in conference committee. Um, but basically he never really got on board with this sales tax swap and was kind of an outspoken critic of it from the start. I would say probably the most outspoken critic of it. Republican. And, Republican. Yeah. Good, right. good point. Good point. <laughs> and, um, you Trey know, Martinez Fisher on line one. Right? <laughs> So um, they, when the Senate passed out uh, their version of school finance without tying it to this tax swap, and then the next day the House decides they're not going to have a vote on it either, 
a lot of the blame on the House floor was laid right at the feet of Paul Betancourt. Um, you know, they were talking about how, you know, calling out, saying that he didn't really come up with an alternative and just a frustration that his opposition was there. Um, you know, and then when they announced uh, conferees for the uh, property tax bill. It's his bill. He's the author of SB2, and he was not named the chair of uh, one of the chairs for the, the conference committee. And so there's, I think, and a feeling that people in the Capitol are pretty mad at him right now. <laughs> well, so Matthew's talking about, I don't know if you said, the exchange between Huberty e. and Burroughs, yeah. the author of HB3 and um, now SB, like HB2. This was in the House yesterday? Yeah. yeah so, right. you know, front mic, back, back mic, they have this like pretty big. Um, dramatic exchange, and this is like when the sales tax swap <laughs> dies. And during it, they blame Betancourt, which is what Matthew was talking about. Um, and then later, they send over this Senate messenger who announces the conferees on SB2 now, the property tax reform bill. And um, Bonin makes kind of a point, like, who did you say the chair of that committee was? And it's it's Hancock, it's not Betancourt, which, is, you know, you can only read that as kind of a statement. And then everyone applauded, right? After, Everyone, after yeah, no, said, I mean, it was, it was funny in statement. the moment. Yeah. And then Burroughs later you know, like we've all moved on, we're on another bill, Burroughs comes back to the mic and asks that those, that exchange be um, transcribed and put into the House Journal for posterity. <laughs> Which, you know, for, for all that, I mean, this is good for Betancourt's politics. He goes home and says, I, I kept you out of a state tax increase, you know, and that works for him. I mean, in, you know, so what if everybody in the playground doesn't like him? Well, I, my, my question for you is how much can you actually blame this on Betancourt? I mean, there, we, I don't think there's, anyone could say with any confidence that they had the votes yesterday to get the tax swap through the House. It was not Paul Betancourt's amendment to untether it from the uh, Senate right. school finance bill. I mean, is he just kind of the scapegoat here? I well, go ahead. go ahead. I feel like hanging over this whole debate was the fact that every Republican, especially in the House, where all of them are on the ballot next year, was thinking about the next primaries and thinking about if I pass, if I vote for this, even if it passes or whether it fa passes or fails, I'm probably, there's a decent chance I get a primary opponent who's going to say my, the incumbent voted to raise your sales taxes. Mm -hmm. And I have to feel like that was in their minds of just thinking, is this worth it? And I, I don't know. I feel like a lot of them were kind of wavering, even if they had said they were for it. I don't know if they were really committed to voting for it. Well, and the problem in the Senate, you know, the Senate is split, you know, so half of it is up for election one year. The other half is up the next year. The Republicans on the ballot um, or whose seats are on the ballot in 2020, only one of them is in a district where there's a serious threat in November. That's Pete Flores, who's in a, mm -hmm. who's a Republican in a Democratic district and frankly would have a very, very hard time winning that district in a regular election. But the rest of them face whatever perils they're going to face really in a Republican primary. And then you start asking all of those people, well, what, how do you think you should vote with your politics in mind? If this wasn't a policy question, just a political question. And all of them are going to say, you know, raising taxes isn't going to be a great idea if, I'm, if my competition's in a Republican primary. In a general election, they might be able to weather it, but really their risk is from, you know, potentially from price-sensitive conservative voters, and why am I voting for a sales tax increase? Mm -hmm. And it would have taken effect, like, right before the election went to Right, and it, yeah, <laughs> and, it, and the timing was, you know, uh, great for the school districts and horrible for the politicians. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I, I think if you get down to brass tacks here, the the lieutenant governor and other Senate leaders couldn't produce the votes and the House didn't vote because the Senate couldn't get there. You know, I, I, it, it remains an open question whether the House could have got there. And you saw Dan Patrick lay down some cover fire last Friday at the pep rally press conference. Well, I think if we can get this through the House, you know, the Senate will be 
blah, blah, blah. But, you know, the Senate didn't have the support and the House mm -hmm. wasn't going to walk the plank for them. Yeah. Shannon, I want to get to your story in a moment, but we have a question from uh, social media. In the end, it appears not much will have happened over the 140 days. True or false? False. False, yeah. False. yeah. What, what would you say are the big things that we're going to, looks like we can say happened? Well, I'll start with the bill I followed, SB2. Um, so there's always like a line in our stories about like the widely, like a raft of like widely agreed to transparency measures. There are a lot of changes that it makes to the property tax system that really I think will end up making the process um, more helpful to ta property taxpayers, like who to protest your bill, how to do all kinds of different things, like why your taxes are being raised. I think a lot of that will become much clearer and actually make, even though it's not sexier, like headline grabbing will probably make somewhat of a difference. Also, there's gonna be those revenue constraints. Um, and then I don't know if you wanna talk about HB3. Well, HB3 yeah. is, you know, I mean, depends on what gets out of the conference committee, but either way, it's a $9 billion change to public education funding. You know, teachers might get a huge pay raise here. You could see changes that are significant. They're buried, but they're changes that are significant in formula funding in schools. You could, uh, we've got a, a whole new conversation going on the STAR test and whether teachers' merit pay should be based on standardized testing and all of those kinds of things. But there's a lot of work and really the things that the governor, lieutenant governor, and speaker laid out at the beginning of the session are all still alive. The, the tax swap came on late. The, the things that they started at the beginning of the game and said These are the, this is the centerpiece, that centerpiece is in exactly the position that they wanted in. It's in the hands of conference committees in, the, in these two bills between HB2 and HB3, you know, unless they fail to get those bills, um, this session is going to be a success for those three. Yeah, the tax swap, you know, they didn't really come out and make that a priority till the press conference in April. You know, I think and on March 31st, if you had told us that, you know, the budget SB2 and HB3 um, would all be in conference committee at this point, I think we'd say, wow, they look like they're in pretty good shape. Right. So, um, you know, part of this is, is self-imposed jumping on a, a, a big plan late in the session, but um, I think they could still credibly, if they can get these bills across the finish line, they could credibly say, you know, we did, we, we did a lot of important things this session. Right, and the other things that are, you know, that would have been the major pieces of this session if they hadn't picked these, the Harvey relief stuff, mm -hmm school safety measures, a lot of that stuff is still moving forward. Some of the mental health stuff is still moving forward. You know, there's a bunch of stuff. There's, you know, 7,200 other bills out there. Um, <laughs> only, you know, only 1,200 or 1,400 of them will pass. But, there's, you know, there's a lot of stuff getting done. So apparently no UTA and M game, huh? Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> I was really looking forward to hearing on that. Yeah. yeah no, me, oh, trust me, me too. <laughs> uh, Shant, you had a really smart story um, this week about kind of this whole situation that happened yesterday mm -hmm. in the House and earlier in the Senate um, about how a session 20 years ago, 21 years ago, actually kind of um, there are echoes of what's happened this session. This Can you talk session. a little about that? Sure. It was actually really um, interesting timing because we published this story in the morning and then by the afternoon I was texting one of the people that I had interviewed for this story and was like, the tax swap doesn't seem to be in play anymore. It was just like so fast. But um, this... So I'll just put like, you know, the commonalities up high, you know, popular governor, um, ambitious tax reform plan, democratic reluctance to back a sales tax, Republican reluctance to be seen backing a kind of tax increase, even if it isn't really like a net 
increase overall. Um, a lot of these things played out. So what happened in 97 is that, you know, the time George Bush is governor, very popular. I think at that time, everyone had a strong feeling he was going to be running for governor and probably, or I'm sorry, president and wanted some signature issue that he could campaign on. He, um, he lays out this really ambitious tax reform plan in his second legislative session. He wants a you know, significant reduction in school district property taxes paid for with an increase to the sales tax of, I think, half a cent, um, big changes to the business tax, and he wants to use a $1 billion budget surplus as a kind of down payment on this whole effort. So it goes to the legislature really quickly, both chambers, first the House and the Senate, change it quite a bit. Um, what happens in the end is that, you know, it runs up against pretty strong opposition from business groups, from Democrats for the reason I listed above, from Republicans right. for the reason I listed above, and it collapses. You know, so um, that's, I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of commonalities between that and today, even though there wasn't any change to the business tax. What's striking is that kind of, th that was such a high profile effort. And a lot of these people were, I mean, Bonin was in the house, I think. then. Right. Um, and it feels like they didn't learn a lot from. All the tax bills go the same way. I mean, you know, even the ones that you get through, this is how this fight goes. You know, there were. It was a big tax bill in the early 90s. Uh, there was a big, huge tax bill in the mid 80s. The failed Bush effort, the, the Perry tax swap in 2006 that everybody talks about came after they failed to get this bill and this legislation considered in 2005 in a regular mm -hmm. session. It's hard as heck to get a tax bill. Um, even the Democrats in Texas are price sensitive. And even if you have something in front of you that voters really, really want, whether that's a cut in property taxes or whether that's increased spending on education or in the case of some of these, a court order to fix the education system that more or less requires an increase. Even if you've got all those things lined up, it's very difficult to raise taxes. At the beginning of the, or before the beginning of the session, the controller put out an annual report on, called tax incidents and, uh, I forget the whole name of the thing, and exemptions. It's $60 billion in tax exemptions. And you look at it and you go, you know, there's a lot here you could play with. If you wanted to tax this, you could raise this much money. But every line of that report, every line of the tax code has a constituency. And mm -hmm. as Shannon says, you know, when you open this thing up and you say, I'm going to try to raise, fiddle with 40 or 50 taxes like Bush was doing, or fiddle with, you know, a dozen taxes like Perry was doing, you immediately have, a, you know, 50 or a dozen enemies. One thing I should add... Um um, so in the end, after though the big tax reform bill collapsed, they did do, they tripled the homestead exemption using the budget surplus, which is not negligible. I mean, it saved homeowners of 140 a year, which I think speaks to just how big the, biz, the property taxes were. 10 bucks a month. The, 12, 12 bucks a month. Oh, <laughs> the reduction is kind of negligible for people. Lunch, right? <laughs> but to Ross's point too, I think I had someone in my story talking about that it can feel like fighting 50 civil wars if you want to close exemptions mm -hmm. on 50 different groups. And just like sitting, if you sit in any ways and means committee hearing where it's like, we want to, you know, do something with the vending machines. Like, you would be surprised at how many industry groups are there saying, you know, this will hurt me in XXX way. I mean, they really come out to make their concerns known. Seems like they didn't even have to do that this time. Just, they I mean, just there watched. Was, and, well, well, there were small things, I think, they yeah. were, I think they were working the halls. I th you know, I think everybody knew, you know, that, for example, that the Texas Oil and Gas Association doesn't like this diversion of the severance tax and, mm -hmm. and you know they didn't necessarily have to come out and testify but they went to every single office and said we don't like it hmm. and they're still yeah. working that by the way that's yeah. still kind it's, of being discussed. well it's in the senate bill it's in the senate version of the bill if you're going to get this dime of tax relief um 
from the things that the Senate cobbled together, you know, one big piece of that is, I think it's 750 million, I may be wrong on the exact amount, I think it's 750 million in oil and gas severance taxes otherwise bound for the state's economic stabilization fund, its savings account, would be used for ongoing public education expenses. And it's vol quite volatile. As a yeah, and it's a tax that goes up and down with oil industry. <laughs> so before we get on to our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TripCast sponsors. Texas State Technical College is the solution to the skills gap in Texas. Find out more at tstc.edu slash 86 session. And in 2018, Walmart spent nearly $52.4 billion with Texas suppliers, supporting 285,000 jobs. More at corporate.walmart.com. So uh, we have three weeks to go in the session, just about. Uh, this, you know, every session, the deadlines are kind of stacked up near the end, which makes these last few weeks pretty kind of volatile. Um, what should TripCast listeners be looking out for as they try to figure out what's going on? Uh, the first thing I would say is, you know, nothing's really dead until they leave. Um, a lot of stuff, you know, bills will die, and that just means the bill number died. The idea may still be alive. It may be that I attach this thing that died in a House bill to that Senate bill, or I get it added on in conference committee, or all of those kinds of things. So one of the things that the lobbyists and all of those folks are doing right now is watching the things that they wanted to get passed to see if they get passed as intended or if they have to get passed in some unintentional way. So if my, you know, there's a deadline uh, tomorrow night at midnight for House bills and House joint resolutions, if they haven't been approved by the House by midnight tomorrow, they're dead on those bill numbers. And so then you start looking at Senate bills and other things that are moving around mm -hmm. to see if what died in my House bill, you know, 5,000 um, can get tacked onto Senate bill 41 or, you know, so, they're going to be scrambling looking for, they call them vehicles. They'll be scrambling looking for vehicles to stuff their pet proposals into. But the first set of deadlines will wipe out, you know, a bunch of the House bills, probably more than half of them. And then a couple of weeks down the line, I think it's on the 18th, I don't have the calendar in front of me, there's a similar deadline in the House for Senate bills. And that's when you're down to real, you know, nail biting. I remember, I think it was the 2015 session. At this point in the session, Campus Carry was assumed dead. And then just, I think, something like four days before the end of the session, the House ended up passing something. Right. And they actually got something to the governor by, it, was, it might have even been the last day of the session or right. the second to last day. If which they're was here, the, there's a way. And I just couldn't even remember the last time I had seen something so significant move on that last day. You know, they, they can, you know, you have to be really careful, you know, in our job or in any other job around this. If you think something's put away and tucked away and has a bow on it, if they're still in town, that's not the case. Yeah, and all these deadlines create leverage for people in power who want big things to happen. And, oh, you know, I'd hate to see your bill <laughs> not make it up by this It's a nice little joint resolution yeah. you got over there. I hate to see anything happen to it. <laughs> yeah. It also gives power to people who are not in power, you know, whether it's Democrats or the Freedom Caucus, who can slow down this process, too, in order to push for what they want. Yeah, delays become very, very important. And, you know, they have a thing in the House called chubbing, which is sort of the House version of a filibuster. If you go back and you ask a bunch of questions and drag things out, mm -hmm. you're killing things on the back of the calendar that aren't going aren't to survive. Um, if I can knock something aside procedurally in March, it'll float back up a couple of weeks later. We don't have a couple of weeks later now. So if you knock something out procedurally now, it's pretty consequential. We have a couple minutes left, so before we go, um, I'm going to take one more question from social media. I don't know if we're going to 
answer this question directly, but it <laughs> reminded me of something I want to talk about. The question is from Patrick. What things besides vaccination does Representative Sticklin consider sorcery? Just Patrick's feedback. Is he on the road <laughs> sending in questions? Yeah. Um, and this is related to Jonathan Sticklin, uh, a House member, got into an argument with um, a very respected vaccine scientist, I believe, about vaccinations. And uh, Sticklin called them sorcery. But uh, this was kind of par for the course for Sticklin. What I wanted to talk about actually was the other reasons he was in the news this week. Um, two things. He left the Freedom Caucus uh, mm-hmm. and he passed a bill. <laughs> he passed his first <laughs> bill last news. night. <laughs> yeah. Sticklin's big week. The the Freedom Caucus thing, I think, came as a big surprise to people because he, I mean, he was the, I would say, by far the most visible member of that caucus, the person who yeah. was the most outspoken, who people kind of associated with the caucus. He didn't specifically give a reason, you know, for why he was leaving. And I think a lot of people kind of have looked at the Freedom Caucus this session under Speaker Bonin and seen it as kind of a different entity. And they've kind of, you know, they, they supported him in his bid for Speaker. They, um, they voted for a lot of bills that, uh, you know, they used to be kind of known as the, the holdouts on, you know, certain uh, leadership priorities. And in some ways, Stickland has been kind of a Freedom Caucus of one. He was the only person to vote against the school finance bill, for instance. And so I think some people have looked at this and wondered, is it because he kind of, is, you know, is he, is he creating his own kind of super Freedom Caucus? Right. You know, not, not really, but Try like, is that kind of how Stickland he... party of one. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, who knows? You know, it, it's, it, it is interesting that he passed a bill soon after that. And, um, uh, you know, we'll, we would only be able to get it, his insight from him. What's fascinating is that bill may be the one that, if it makes it to the governor, will be the one like Texans remember the most from this yeah. session, yeah. which is because it would it would ban red light cameras. Right. It's something that voters actually care about, and you know, and, and are connected with, and they look up from the you know every time they run a yellow light and go ah camera. <laughs> Although in the current, I believe in the current form that it passed the House, it lets cities continue their current contracts. Uh, which means some places will, you know, it'll be announced red light cameras are banned, but your city's going to keep it for three more years because that's how long their contract goes for. Um, so it'll get a lot of attention if it actually does get signed by the government, but it'll also probably just confuse and annoy a lot of people in the short term. But just either way, just it is fascinating that he's become this kind of um, uh, outside figure from, you know, out of his caucus, out of his party in a sense in the House, and yet he may have passed he may end up being the author of the bill that gets like the most traction in terms of like everyday Texans. Well, he's had an interesting few years, you know, the, um, he was not really seen as like a big target in the most recent elections and then ended up having a pretty close race. Yeah. He and finished then, with under 50%. Yeah. And then he, it was you, he gave that interview to, right? Yeah, Shannon. T- yeah. What did he say? after well, the election? so we did a story right after the election about, um, you know, the hard right had kind of a hard, a very hard right had a hard night, really. And um, <laughs> use that headline? Headline. That's great, yeah. honestly, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, retrospect, yeah, we were tired. <laughs> yeah. So you know, we we mentioned a bunch of people, but I think that we put in the story that few um, few lawmakers had a tough, like a more precarious path to victory that night than Jonathan Sticklin, who you know his district abuts Capriglione's and Capriglione's. I'm sorry, Capriglione's, and um, like the districts, you know, differ demographically, of course, but it was like a huge difference between the two. I mean, Stickland was under 50 mm-hmm. and he'd like won with higher margins in the past. So I called him honestly, like not, I think I'd called his office first. I really like wasn't um, expecting him to be that receptive. And he had a pretty candid conversation with me about, 
you know, it was a wake up call. I didn't really do that much campaigning. I need to get kind of back in touch with the district. Um, and he sounded very sincere. So um, I don't know what that bo like bodes. Well, in now terms he can of go strategy, back and tell everybody, bang on everybody's door and say, red light cameras. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And he, you know, he pulled his constitutional carry bill after the, the activists showed up yeah, at right. Dennis Bonin's house, you know, right. which was an interesting spell, leaving the Freedom Caucus. I mean, he's definitely had a active session. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess we'll have to see if uh, what shape the Freedom Caucus is in in a few weeks. We have three weeks more of sorcery. <laughs> that too. <laughs> uh, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to Visit San Antonio, Texas Healthcare and Bioscience Institute, Texas State Technical College, and Walmart, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ross, Matthew, and Shannon, and our producers Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Amon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>